Welcome to a new episode of the Macro Trading Floor. Basically, the only trading floor where the recordings are released to the public. Joking aside, we, of course, aim at providing you the most actionable macro content each and every week. Uh, there is more than enough macro blabbering out there, which is why we always want to conclude with a concrete trade idea based on a macro thesis. So um, let's get to it. I'm Andreas Steno. And I'm Alfonso Peccatiello, which, by the way, I'm pretty good at blabbering. So shall I start? Do some blabbering, Andres? <laughs> then we're going to go to some, <laughs> to some trade ideas. It's June 23rd, 2022. And last week, global macro markets have started to change a bit their tunes, I think, uh, or at least start signaling a shift in narrative, if you ask me. And I find it visible in a couple of asset classes. Um, the first one being commodities cyclical industrial commodities, where you see industrial metals, uh, where you see copper, you see oil, you see lumber, and all these relatively cyclical commodities taking quite a drawdown, um, even double digits percent in a single week. And so you have to wonder, Andreas, as the supply side of these commodities hasn't really gotten any better since last week or the last two weeks. Uh, take oil as an example, right? you got to wonder whether it's demand rolling over or the very first evidence signs that that is the case. And I find that important because inflation expectations, you, you actually teach me that, are strangely correlated, even long-term inflation expectations are strangely correlated to oil prices, to spot oil prices and other commodities, actually. If you, if you chart them, they look, they look almost overlapping over a very long period of time. So if commodities were to actually roll over, you might have some inflation expectation rolling over too. And why not? Maybe even the momentum of headline inflation, which the Federal Reserve is so keen about, actually slowing down too. And that would have a bunch of implications for several asset classes. So I want to get your take on, do you believe that that regime narrative shift basically is happening or is it just you know a drawdown? Uh well, I've basically been waiting for that regime shift, uh, or at least that sh shift in storytelling for, for a few months now. Uh, the demand side is quite clearly rolling over. Uh, if we look at forward-looking indicators, um, it, it holds that story for both Europe, um, also to a large extent, the US. And uh, then we know that uh, the Chinese activity is, is fairly low as a consequence of the COVID policy over there. Um, so I've been waiting for that signal. Uh, and I'm kind of tempted to say that we're close to uh, confirming that signal that the demand side is now in the driver's seat of commodity pricing, uh, which is an interesting change of scenery. Uh, I've also noted how the oil price is basically almost one-to-one -one correlated with Eurodollar futures in Q1 next year. Um, so when the oil price drops, it also means that the terminal rate of the Federal Reserve is priced lower. And I think to a certain extent that makes sense, given that Powell has been so vocal about the price at the pump, basically. Uh, so if gasoline prices are high, then he expects inflation expectations to remain high, uh, as it is basically the most visible inflation uh, for regular people. Uh, so if the gasoline price starts dropping, it may be a signal for the Fed to slow down a bit as well. Incredible. I mean, I would never have thought that the Federal Reserve or other central banks would basically try to be short commodities and try to make sure that commodities actually go down. But it is probably 
what you're trying to achieve. The demand for certain commodities, agricultural commodities or oil, for instance, might be relatively inelastic. And I think the Federal Reserve is trying to test how inelastic it is until they bring it to an elastic point where demand has been damaged enough, then even probably these more stuck, sticky commodities can drop and therefore, you know, start uh, affecting month-to-month inflation prints too. That is also relevant because yesterday, Andreas, uh, in his in his testimony, Powell gave quite an important speech. And I think he, he outlined two, two points I want to get your take on. The first one he said, uh, by the end of the year or very soon, we'd like to have Fed funds rate as prescribed by the Taylor rule. What? Are you serious? Okay. <laughs> that was the first thing. And then you know, we can talk about what the Taylor rule might be saying now. And the second one was, uh, well, you know, guys, these mortgage-backed securities, we started quantitative tightening, right? But we, we plan to sell some uh, to, to um, reduce the size of the mortgage-backed securities book. The problem is that with interest rates being so high, the amount of prepayments is obviously, uh, of refinancing, let's say, it's obviously lower than it would have been when rates were very low. So the projections for these mortgage-backed securities to mature well, obviously, there will be less of these of this, uh, bonds maturing every month. And if the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve wants to achieve, basically, their target of reducing the MBS on the balance sheet by X billion a month, they actually might have to sell some to the public. That's what he stated yesterday. There's going to be a plan out about selling MBSs. And we are seeing that as mortgage rates are already above 6%. Basically, I have two questions. The first is, what do you make of this Taylor Rule comment, which was interesting? And the second one is, do you really think they're going to be selling MBS to the public and what will be the effect of that? First on the Taylor rule, I, I tend to call it the boomer rule myself. Um, <laughs> I basically thought that it was dead and buried, but um, apparently um, it's back in the limelight given what we see in inflation. Uh, I, I guess the simple way of explaining the Taylor rule is that you should allow the policy rate to reflect the sequential changes in inflation and the unemployment rate. Uh, so when you have very low unemployment and inflation running above target, then the Taylor rule will tell you to basically deliver a lot of rate hikes. Um, and I guess if we actually allowed the good old Taylor rule to dictate the policy right now, then we would be running at, say, 7 8 9% um, policy rates around the world. Uh, but it obviously doesn't take into account the sort of uh, structural changes that we've seen since the inauguration of that rule. Um, so the same unemployment rule um, as in 1970 is simply not applicable anymore, uh, which is why I think it's it's a dead and buried concept. But um, interesting that Paul mentioned it on, on the MBS story. Um, I guess it makes sense for the Federal Reserve to look into actually outright selling them. Uh, and the reason is that one of the more sticky components in the inflation index is the so-called rent of shelter component. Uh, and I would argue that it's quite clearly linked to the nominal price developments in um, in the housing market. Uh, so I suppose that the Federal Reserve would like house prices to cool off and maybe even correct a bit lower because it will help them bring inflation back to target. So. In that sense, it's a pretty obvious target for them to to um, to look at the mortgage-backed security book that they have on their, on their balance as well. But yeah. Another thing, Alfonso, because um, if we look at Macroland right now, we also have a central bank in um, in the Far East, which is very interesting right now, namely Bank of Japan. Um, they've been defending their yield curve control policy 
quite fiercely over the past few weeks. Is that something that you would argue that investors should look at? Yeah, of course they should look at. They should look at everything. Um, Fintuit is also Twitter is very very vocal about um, something breaking in Japan. So I would like to get my take to to give my take on that. The only entity that can break anything in Japan is Japan itself. Now the work is basically they'll need to they'll need to say, guys, all right, twenty five basis point on ten years doesn't work anymore. We'll probably do 50 or 75, we'll do a range. And or because the yen is depreciating in a disorderly way, as we are the only central bank left in the world, not even Switzerland anymore, is is uh, stuck at negative 75 basis point, as we are the only dovish central bank in the world, you know, we, we'll need to basically sell foreign assets to make sure that the yen stops de- depreciating that aggressively. So there are basically two combined or different solutions they can take to try and make sure the yen actually stops depreciating that aggressively. There is nobody who can force this on the Bank of Japan, if not the Bank of Japan itself. The other thing I want to point out is that all the trades that involve trying to time when the Bank of Japan will fold on their policy, if they will, are uh, negative carry trades. So you will be bleeding while you wait. And, And that is so it's very easy for Twitter to say, oh, I'm short this, I'm short JGB futures, I am uh, whatever, I am uh, long the yen and short the dollar. Any of all these trades basically involve paying optionality, which is fine. It's totally fine if you're right to get quite a payoff, but something is priced in already as well. And that's my last point before I get back to you, Andreas. The 10-year Japanese government bond deal, the cash yield, is basically determined by the Bank of Japan. It's 25 basis point, the upper end, you can't get any higher than that. But the Bank of Japan doesn't trade futures and the Bank of Japan doesn't trade swaps, which means that if you look at these two, let's say derivatives market, you have an understanding that market participants are already pricing in a certain probability that they will break, both in swaps and in backdated futures. So when you pile up on that trade, you are already paying for that probability being discounted. And then you are basically assuming that you will you will have a, a payoff which is already better than the one which is already discounting and you're paying for it. Again, all yeah. possible, the payoff can be nice and dandy, but I want people to know that you know there is a carry to pay. Maybe on Twitter there is no carry to pay, but in reality, there is a carry to pay. There's an implied probability as well in there that they will fold. Back to you, mate. As far as I know, Twitter is still free. Um, let's see. Let's see whether Elon Musk will change that. Then, then, then you might run into a negative carry on Twitter as well. <laughs> I suppose not. But uh, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, it's it's a tricky risk reward uh, assessment uh, that you need to conduct um, in, in regards to Bank of Japan right now because I think there is a risk that they will allow the ten year point to go, or at least that they will move the target on the 10-year point on the U-curve. But whether it's tradable and whether you will uh, have a good risk-reward of entering that trade, we can get back to that. But that's a, that's a tricky assessment, uh, and there are there are various ways of doing it. Uh, I'm probably tempted to take an FX position, um, but by the end of the day, who knows in terms of timing? Uh, remember when the Swiss National Bank uh, remove the floor from under euro versus Swiss franc. I mean, they didn't give any hints ahead of it, right? Um, of course you cannot. So this will be a massive surprise once it happens, if it happens. That's safe to say. 
I think, Andreas, we should ask our guests today, what do they think about that trade? And maybe they, if they have any other trade ideas, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. So the guest of this week who wants to talk about Japan is not coming from Japan, interestingly. So he's probably not going to know anything about it and pretend that he knows. And um, <laughs> this, this actor in front of us right here is the guy who wants to talk about Japan and has a trade about Japan. And it's my friend, Andreas Steno Larsen. Welcome to the show. Cheers, mate. Uh, after a truckload of public demand, I am back with my inverse Steno ETF. <laughs> all right all right ladies and gentlemen you know the rules of the inverse you know etf andreas calls for a trade you do the exact opposite and you'll be rich it's it's great it's great <laughs> just kidding mate so um let's have a bit of a deeper chat about japan it's a topic of interest of late so walk me through your rationale on what the heck is going on with the bank of japan well it's quite interesting that they're kind of the only central bank still stuck in an old regime. Um, even the Swiss National Bank is now moving. Uh, and it strikes me that in this kind of reverse currency war that we are amidst currently, Bank of Japan is, is, is the only central bank not joining it. Um, they have slowly but surely acknowledged that it is an issue that the Japanese yen weakens as fast as it does right now. Um, there is even an ongoing debate between uh, the prime minister and, um, and the Bank of Japan on this exact topic. But still, uh, I think it was last week, we had a very clear majority in favor of keeping the 10-year uh, yield curve control intact at 25 basis points. So. My thesis is basically that behind closed doors, they are slowly but surely starting to debate with each other how to handle this situation. Uh, because obviously, if the Japanese yen weakens at the current pace throughout this quarter, then even Japan will be faced with inflation. Uh, that's that's quite the news, right? Um, if we look at headline inflation, they are, are running at, at a bit more than 2.5% right now which is, I guess, fairly benign if you compare it to, to other jurisdictions around the globe. But still, if we pencil in the developments that we've seen in FX space over the past weeks just, uh, and if we basically extrapolate that trend alongside uh, higher food and commodity prices, um, which are still not fully reflected in the Japanese CPI index, then I'm fairly sure that we will at least get above 3%, uh, which in case would likely lead Bank of Japan to at least debate the current policy stance. Um, so I actually think that there is a chance that they will have to do something. Um, and I guess markets also kind of reflect that already. But Andreas, let me try and play devil's advocate. Mm. For the last 20 years, Japan has seen core inflation at zero percent on average 0.2 actually for the last 20 years basically nothing they've been screaming to get some inflation and inflation expectations picking up somehow and my point is if i look at inflation swaps in japan even the front end inflation swaps those would be more impacted by food prices and japan is a net importer of about anything yes. energy etc 
those would have to reflect somehow that inflation expectations, you know, they should have, they should reflect these higher prices and go up. And if I look at front end, we're looking at maybe one and a half percent inflation expectation. If I look at the back end, I'm looking at five year, five year, around one percent. Mm. So a country that has always screamed for inflation, a country that has always tried to re-anchor inflation expectations higher, finally has a chance to do <laughs> so. And now you're telling me, no, dude, at some point they will fold. So what do you make of this counter argument? Well, <laughs> of course, if, if you uh, look at the Bank of Japan from sort of an average inflation targeting perspective, uh, the concept that was launched by the Federal Reserve in September 2020, then I guess they have all the leeway in the world. I mean, they could just continue doing this for an, another couple of decades. Um, the, the question here is whether the public in Japan will accept energy and food prices uh, skyrocketing as a consequence of FX effects. That's basically the thing to consider for Bank of Japan. It's very, very easy to tell the public that you allow inflation to go above target. Um, but as soon as the inflation is actually above target, it's a whole different thing. Uh, so I don't think that they will consider uh, 20 years of weak inflation history if inflation actually starts rallying. Uh, there is no leeway as soon as inflation is running to 3% uh, above target, if we get there. But the reason why I'm not fully convinced that they will do so, I only uh, imply a probability of them doing so, uh, is that uh, inflation expectations obviously also matter for actual inflation. Uh, so as long as uh, back-end inflation expectations are around 1%, then there is at least no risk of a wage-to-price spiral. Uh, and that risk is, is obviously much higher if you look at it in the US or in Europe. So point being, if spot inflation runs hot, then no one dares to even consider um, the, the history. But ultimately, I don't think they have an inflation issue. I'm also saying that. So these policymakers are fun, Andreas. I mean, they talk about average inflation targeting, and then if inflation picks up a bit above the 2%, then they, they have to fold immediately, right? But it's the crux of a policymaker that wants to keep things under control in a certain controlled mm. environment. And, you know, once inflation and inflation expectation go too much to the right of the distribution, then they feel compelled actually to to act and bring things back into this controlled area. Now, another question I have for you on Japan is, they basically have two ways. Let's assume they are keen in stopping this disorderly depreciation of the yen. They consider it to be disorderly. They want to stop it. They have two ways to do that, I guess. One is to make sure that domestic interest rates are higher and relatively attractive compared to foreign interest rates abroad and therefore bring back capital mm -hmm. in Japan and therefore appreciate the yen this way. Or they can simply just do it themselves. Japan has been a capital exporter for the last, whatever, 30 years. And so they've accumulated a huge amount of foreign assets. What they could do as well is to basically sell some of those and then repatriate money back in Japan. That would also appreciate the yen for, to a certain extent. Um, what strategy do you think they will go for and why? I mean, ultimately, if they allow the yield curve control uh, to move, uh, or at least they allow the target to move to another level, let's say 75 basis points or whatever, um, we're just assuming that now, then I guess the repatriation will happen by itself. 
Um, yeah. Uh, Japanese pension funds will start buying local bonds again to a larger extent, at least the relative value gets better. Um, and that's at least one way of doing it, uh, which is, is, is fairly obvious to me. Um, so if they're not saved by external factors, and I want to get back to those in a second, then I think that's the most straightforward way of, uh, of actually doing it for Bank of Japan. Uh, because they can credibly move that target and then they can probably also strike a, uh, a deal behind closed doors with Japanese pension funds uh, that they will uh, actually get back in the local market buying if they if they move the target a bit. All right. So I, I think I sense that you believe that Japan can hold the ground for only as long as they can really, which is when inflation starts exceeding 25 to 3% for a couple of months maybe, and then all of a sudden this implied average inflation targeting falls and they have to take action. And however they do it, they're probably going to strengthen the yen compared to what's priced in right now. So if you have to look at structuring a trade, how would you think about that? Well, first of all, I think this um, trade will work in a couple of scenarios. Uh, first scenario being that uh, the interest rate pressure will remain very fierce on um on Bank of Japan, uh, I think it's quite visible from the amount of speculation that we've seen in futures that big institutions are betting against Bank of Japan right now. Uh, they have uh, defended this yield curve control target with a, with an arm and a leg in recent weeks. Um, I mean, just look at the charts. The the outright amount of buying that they've been conducting is just massive compared to to the last few years, even. Um, so, in 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 the scenario where global interest rates continue up. I think the pressure will be too big on Bank of Japan uh, and they will eventually fold in such a scenario. Very tricky to time uh, since no one will uh, allow any hints at all before actually um, allowing the uh, 10-year yield curve control to, to move its target. Um, but still, in such a scenario, ultimately, the Japanese yen could take quite a, a big move in a positive direction. That's one scenario. The second scenario is basically that we get a reversal of the global trends that we've seen over the past quarters. We spoke about this initially uh, in today's podcast. Let's assume that commodity prices start dropping. Uh, let's assume that uh, we get cheaper energy prices again. I actually think that's a pretty positive scenario for the yen as well, uh, mainly due to the fact that Japan is one of the biggest importers of, of energy worldwide. Uh, and um, it also means that uh, so from a tr um, balance of trade perspective that uh, Japan regains some strength in such a scenario. So even if the world falls apart um, or if growth really slows from here and, and, and it will uh, lead to, to, to lower commodity prices, I also think that's a good scenario for the yen. Probably more of a uh, steady decline in dollar yen than uh, the very uh, one-off nature of, of um a change in the policy on the yield curve control. But in both instances, um, I like to be short dolly and you can hear that, right? Uh, and I think from a risk reward perspective, you don't want to be run over by a bus if I'm wrong on this view, because if they keep buying all the bonds with an arm and a leg, then of course the yen will continue to weaken against the dollar. Um, and therefore my best take is basically to, to uh, structure this around and out of the money, dollar input, um, with a strike of around 120. Um, we've seen that level earlier this year. Uh, I know it's roughly 13% from, from spot thereabout, um, but 
I guess if if they take a surprise move and move up the yield curve control target by 25 or 50 basis points, it's not out of this world to think of a 10% FX move. So let me try to recap. You want to buy a put on dollar yen with a three-month expiry, roughly 10, 10 to 12% out of the money forwards. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you don't want to pay for Theta. You want to basically assume that this is going to happen over the next three yes. months. So you want to go You want to go very directional, let's say, on this bet because you think they'll have to fold sooner rather mm-hmm. than later. Uh, you put yourself quite out of the money. So the outright cost to buy this option is not extremely high. Uh, and basically, you're looking at quite a depreciation. So the annualized volatility... Uh, in this pair is priced to be around 12% mm. looking ahead of us, uh, roughly, depending on which structure you're looking at. And you're looking at a 12% move your way to make you uh, in the money in this put over the next three months. Now that's quite quite a directional move. You want to elaborate a bit, maybe, Andreas, on the, the let's say, the, the structure or the risk management around this trade? Well, yeah. I mean, the price of it is... Uh, below a half percent of the nominal, um, depending a bit on on uh, on the spot uh, price on 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 the execution date, uh, but but uh, anyway, I think if if the Japanese yen moves, it moves fast, um, and therefore I think it makes a whole lot of sense to to structure it around a, a clearly out of the money put in dollar yen, um, since the notion that you have to come up with initially is is, is fairly low, um, and if it moves. Then I could even envisage moves clearly below that um, that uh, uh, strike price that I that I envisage. Um, so that's that's kind of my thinking uh, that you get, get you do get cheap optionality uh, on on a very um, marked event if it happens. So we can try to sound as smart as we want with this theta blah blah, but in reality. A lot of this trade has to do with uh, the directionality and the pace mm. of the move, uh, which is basically to be short dollar yen and to have the trade move your way in a significant way over the next three months. Yes. Is that yes. fair enough? Ladies and gentlemen, you can now go short the yen according to the inverse Stino <laughs> ETF. And uh, you have, you know, it's it's a guaranteed rate of return. Just kidding. Yeah, I, I mean, with one final <laughs> remark from my side, um, you can also implement this trade in other ways. Uh, you can, of course, sell the 10-year uh, Japanese government bond future. Uh, that's one way of doing it, clearly the way that we've seen institutions doing it uh, in a bet against Bank of Japan. Or else there is an Invesco currency shares, Japanese yen trust, it's called. Um, so it's basically a long yen versus G10 um, ETF. But, I mean, that comes with a weaker risk-reward, if you ask me, because that basically makes you cash long the Japanese yen day one. Um, and you don't have any protection against a violent move against you. Very fair mm-hmm. point. With that said, I would say the guest number one of the day has come up with a very clear trade idea and uh, maybe you should call in the guest number two of the That's day. Fair. So it's time to introduce the second guest of the week. Um, and I don't think you need to be a mathematician to guess who it is. Uh, it is my friend, Alfonso Picacello. Um, Elf, 
I know you've been short on equities in a while. Is that still the case? What what's your thinking about equity markets given the developments that we see worldwide right now? From time to time, I'm lucky enough to be right too, Andreas. Mm. So the short on S&P from uh, 43.85 on the futures has been running well. Um, the macro narrative has been unfolding, all good and dandy. But right now, the situation is a bit shifting, I think, under the surface. And it's shifting towards... Um, from multiple compressions that we have seen happening towards, I think, the growth scare that is coming closer and closer. And in the intro of the podcast, we have discussed a couple of demand destruction uh, market signals, but there are plenty of forward-looking indicators that are pointing towards that for months now. We can point to the Philly Fed CEO survey where they ask a bunch of 125 CEOs in America what is your perspective on new orders coming in over the next 6 to 12 months? The answer to that survey is the lowest in a decade. If you look at uh, ISM, new orders against inventories, also pretty, pretty low and going down. If you look at the amount of credit being created uh, on a second derivative basis, so that the acceleration of deceleration, also deeply negative. And I can continue on and on with forward-looking indicators telling us that growth is about to slow down very fast. One additional thing, even the New York Fed has mm. updated their own model projecting real GDP to be negative, both in 2022, it's this year, guys, recession this year as a mm. base case from the New York Fed GDP forecast model. And they also forecast GDP to be negative in 2023. So we're talking about a two-year long recession. That's their base case from the New York Fed themselves. As I see this, Andreas, I compare this against... Um, analysts' earnings expectations across the board. And if I strip out the energy part, earnings are still supposed to grow on a healthy single-digit level year-on-year over the next 12 months. If you put energy in there, you go double digits, right? Mm-hmm. But I, we can talk about the free cash flows of the energy sector and all that beautiful stuff. But even X energy, I'm looking at a high single-digit. And things just don't square from that perspective, Andreas. So I've been short the S&P which is a very, um, I mean, because of the rally of tech over the last 10 years has become quite a, a consumer discretionary tech intensive index at the end of the day, still relatively diverse, but it is, um, mm-hmm. there is quite a component of consumer discretionary in tech, which has been hit by a multiple compression. And right now I'm looking at multiples and I'm looking at earnings and I'm asking myself, is there a better expression to be short, which is basically what the new trade will be about, but I'm going to shut up for a moment and allow you to ask a question. If you look at current multiples, uh, one of the key multiples that um, analysts, strategists, uh, macroeconomists point to is the 12-month forward PE ratio. What do you make of that ratio and where it's headed? Okay, 12-month forward PE. Okay, so let's see. Um, It means we are assuming that there is an earnings... Uh, consensus over the next 12 months we're going to respect so we are looking at next 12 month earnings and we're going to be saying yeah we agree with that let's look beyond that and then let's look at the valuation perspective which Mm. is a pe and the pe is the uh, reverse or you can reverse that into an earnings yield basically so if you want to make that comparable to a bond you're going to be saying this is the price i'm paying to buy the 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 earnings going forward right this is the yield that i'm cashing Mm. in on these earnings going forward 
So two things to say. First is we need to talk about the E of earnings. So we just discussed that. And I think that the base case I have is much more negative than the base case analysts are pricing in. Hmm. So I need to make sure I discount some of that in the 12-month forward PE because I don't agree with analysts at the end of the day. Hmm. And the second thing is the earnings yield itself. And people look at that in a silo. And they're like, hey, Alf, look at that. I mean, valuations have already compressed and we're looking at a... I think we're trading at what a 10 year average right now or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's great. And I'm like, no guys, it's not great because valuation, an investor is not looking at equities in a silos. It's looking at equities against bank deposits, against treasuries, against corporate bonds, against a bunch of other asset classes you can allocate across the frontier with different risk rewards and different volatilities and different expected returns. Right now, an investor can buy a 10 or 20 year treasury at almost three and a half percent. So from an, both from a nominal, but even from a real interest rate pricing priced in, you're looking at positive interest rate, real interest rates, both, both, both positive nominal, positive real implied. And that makes the attractiveness of that earnings yield implied by the forward PE much worse. Because if you basically try to design a very simple measure of risk premium and look at forward earnings yield minus a risk-free alternative, so let's say a treasury, all of a sudden you realize that equities are not cheap at all. If you stop looking at them in a silo and you look at them against the risk-free alternative, against corporate bonds, against any other asset classes people can buy with a different risk reward, you understand they are not that cheap anymore. And on top of it, I don't agree with the E of the 12-month forward PE. And I think there is a bunch of forward-looking indicators that would make my case stronger than the analyst's case, I guess, let's see. And ultimately I expect analysts to start folding as well on their earnings consensus and bring them down a bit yeah i mean on a very simple chart if you look at 12 month forward pe's they look fairly average compared to history uh, but you're obviously right that if they're based on optimistic ease so the earnings cycle uh, then obviously that's that's not comforting anyway um if, if we look at current pe ratios versus forward PE ratios. I think there are two sectors that are priced to increase their PE ratios over the next 12 months, energy and materials. But otherwise, all other sectors are priced to at least um, decrease PEs slightly on a forward basis. Are there any sectors that you dislike more than others in this scenario? Yeah. So basically, if we have to move from a Let let me put it like that. I still believe that in this environment for valuation to expand is pretty complicated. You need risk sentiment to pick up again. You need real interest rates to start dropping a bit. And Powell has told us that he wants to see real interest rates positive across the curve. And front-end real interest rates are negative 100 basis points. So it means that to bring those up, it needs to tighten a policy or kill spot inflation very quickly. That's not necessarily a very supportive environment for valuations, but I think there is an even a less supportive environment for earnings going forward. So if I look at the, at the sectors that are um, impacted by both valuation and earnings, and I, and I put them on a, on, a, on a scale, I see that you know small caps in the US are, in my opinion, pretty vulnerable right now. And people will be looking at me like, oh, the Russell already dropped, what, 20% yesterday? What are you looking at here? And I'm looking at more because I think an earnings recession is about to hit us. And if that is about to hit us, then ultimately the Federal Reserve will have to fold at some point. And once they do, Andreas, 
even before they do, I think the back end of the bond yield curve will will start to signal that we are about to revert to a mean for long-term bonds. Mm. As we do that, the curve will, will deeply invert, if I am right. And as third-year bond yield and 10-year bond yields will probably have to drop a bit for that curve to invert, stuff like good quality tech might get a slight boost on the valuation perspective as people start to you know, look at discounting these very long cash flows with a lower yield, mm. which, which will be the slightly lower 10-year or third-year bond yield. That is not the case for small cap. Small cap US stocks need earnings. They need a strong economic cycle to thrive. Mm. And right now they're going to get the exact opposite of that, if I am right. So what I'm looking at is I still want to be net short equities right now. I don't want to abandon that position because it's working and I think it's still there is still a, a, um, a case to be made for overall risk sentiment in equities to remain very poor. Mm. I'm just looking to overlay into the trade a relative value position across sectors that would make me benefit as well from the slight divergence, which is likely to happen when an earnings recession hits, that is going to hit the most the US small cap stocks compared to the high quality tech names that are maybe sitting in other indexes that might get a bit of a tailwind from lower discounting values for their cash flows. In other words, lower long-end bond deals. Hmm. So how would you implement this trade? So I think one of, probably the, the, the best way to do that will be to sell two units of Russell and buy one unit of Nasdaq against it. Hmm. So I'll try to explain what I mean. What I mean is with this trade, if you look at it from an aggregate basis, you are two units short and one unit long, which means you are net short the equity market overall as the main driver of the trade. And that basically remains a mix of shorting earnings and shorting valuations to a certain perspective, but with a tilt towards shorting earnings because you're short two times the Russell, which is a very earnings intensive, earnings cyclical driven index of small cap in the US. On top of it, you have a relative value trade, which is the one unit of Russell against the one unit of Nasdaq, right? So you are short the Russell and long the Nasdaq within the same trade. Mm. And that part of the trade might benefit from the divergence that is coming at a point when earnings recession hits and back-end bond deals will have to drop reflecting this fact. I think the Federal Reserve, Andreas, will be very late in recognizing that. They'll be so stubborn. They'll be so reactive rather than proactive. Mm. Until they literally see month-on-month inflation dropping, they'll be, they'll be talking about selling MBSs. They'll be talking about Taylor rules. They'll be talking about all of that. What's that going to do at some point is it's going to, interestingly, I think, flatten out the curve so much that long-end bond deals can stabilize or even rally. And once they do good quality tech companies might get a tailwind from a valuation perspective. I want to capture that by being at least one unit short Russell, one unit long Nasdaq as a relative value trade, but overall two units short Russell, one long Nasdaq to capture the the negative equity sentiment I still expect to prevail over time. We, of course, always allow our guests an exit option <laughs> when, when they put on a trade. Um, and, um, of course, uh, you should be allowed such an exit option as well. But let me play the devil's advocate before I give the word to you on that exit option. Because if I look at the service sector this summer, um, I think it's quite visible that uh, the reopening trend is still intact. Uh, we have a summer ahead with a lot of activity in terms of travels, tourism, uh, restaurant visits, all that. Is that 
a point that could derail your thesis if the service sector really gets a booming summer. Yeah, Andreas, I mean, basically, the I am terribly wrong if I get a cyclical economic growth ahead of me, which is very strong and it drives earnings to be strong and it validates the Federal Reserve hiking cycle. So you'll have the Federal Reserve hiking into a cyclical growth uptick. Mm. Then I'm really, really, really wrong because the the Nasdaq lack of the trade will suffer out of sustainably higher interest rates. So not flatter curves, but rather mm. even a bit steeper curve because you know the economy mm. is picking up. On top of it, two units short Russell will get completely smashed because earnings will will rally out of this uh, cyclical economic growth. So you know that's a horrible trade in that case. If I'm looking at the distribution of outcomes ahead of me, I'm wondering how can we stop the machine of tighter financial conditions that are hitting the economy over time mm. in a more than linear way. So one point I want to come across with is People expect that if we raise, we make financial conditions tighter across the board, mortgage rates, mm. corporate spreads, yields, whatever, it's going to have an impact of, on, over the economy and they extrapolate it's a linear impact. Well, the reality is slightly different because our economy is so leveraged and our system is so hyper-financialized that once you start seeing negative impacts, the longer financial conditions are tight the higher the probability that some domino knock-on effect because of the embedded leverage in our system will start to hit. And then I'm wondering, how can we engineer not only to stop the bleeding, but to actually make our economic cycle go up, so Mm -hmm. change the momentum in earnings and, and economic growth? I find that extremely, extremely complicated, Andreas. That makes me want to have the trade. How can I be wrong? Well, well, if the econ- if the economy starts, you know, humming on all on all cycles and goes all the way, all the way up to a you know basically a very healthy above trend growth, honestly, I don't I don't see that happening. No, me neither actually. <laughs> so to conclude, you want to be short two lots of um, of the Russell and long one lot of the Nasdaq index, um, basically betting on an earnings recession and the earnings recession narrative taking over from the multiple contraction narrative. That was it for my trade, guys. So now you can go and buy all the Russell you want and uh, you're going to be fine with it. (laughs) So, guys, it's time to criticize each other's trades, as we always do. But in this case, instead of doing that on the back of, uh, of the guest, now I have Andreas in front of me and I have to talk about his trade and he's looking at me. So, um... Andrea's trade on the 23rd of June was to effectively short dollar and long yen via a three-month put option quite far out of the money, very directional with a lot of leverage into that, not paying for theta, but rather just going fully directional on the trade and betting for an outsized move of the yen stronger over the next three months. So what do I think of that? I think he's paying not much for the option, to be honest. I mean, it's not super cheap, but it's not super expensive either. He is looking at a very convex payoff, like he really needs a sharp move his way to make money. We're talking about a move that is like two or three times bigger than the annualized volatility being priced in effectively in the option. So he needs to really, really move fast his way. And he's assuming that the BOJ will have to fold quickly in order to make money out of that. 
So what do I think of that is that overall, Andreas is looking at the Bank of Japan denying themselves quickly mm. because they just told us, they basically stopped out all the shorts about a week ago. Everybody was short uh, JGB futures. They were long yen and they were stopped out by Kuroda overnight. That's basically what happened. And Andreas is assuming that Kuroda will fold. I'll, I'm going to take the under. I don't think Kuroda will fold bad enough over the next three months to give Andreas a payoff on his trade. Now, punch me in the face, mate. You're right and refuse. I mean, fair enough. Um, and I think the issue here um, is that if you look at the global bond markets compared to the last few times the Bank of Japan have been tested, then it's just a different ballpark today. Um, but let's see. Uh, I mean, I acknowledge that this is a tailbed. Uh, it obviously is. Um, and you should, of course, include this among a portfolio of ideas. Uh, and don't throw all of your eggs into this basket. That, that, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, your turn to... Uh... Tell me that I'm an idiot and I should buy as many Russells as I can, Andreas. Go with it. <laughs> I, uh, I suppose you like your own idea, at least. Um, <laughs> that, but um, I, I lean the same way. I have to admit that um, if uh, I, I tend to look at earnings in a very simple way. I have a, um, a cost-based model, uh, which is essentially uh, a result of upcoming wage pressures. And then I have a, um, a model on GDP uh, or PMIs. So basically a, a measure of, uh, of the demand side of the economy. And I think it's fairly simple. If, if the GDP trend is headed lower, uh, I'm absolutely sure that it is. Uh, and uh, on the other side, if the cost pressure slowly but surely builds uh, beneath the surface, uh, then you have a, a weak top line um, and a um, firming uh, cost side at the same time. Well, net-net, earnings down, margins squeezed, etc. Uh, I don't think it's it's much more tricky than that. Um, so from a risk-reward perspective, I, I, I tend to like this trade. What, what I'm obviously a bit scared about here is that, uh, and I've, I'm saying this because I've been wrong-footed on it, um, in, in March, is that um, it is unprecedented times in terms of inflation and the reaction that we get at the far end of the yield curve. Uh, and there is a risk that you get run over by a bus um, if inflation doesn't come down um, yes. on, on this trade, I think. Imagine, at least on the imagine, NASDAQ lag of it. Yeah. Imagine that lag of long NASDAQ short Russell and imagine the, the Federal Reserve goes like, well, we don't think we have tightened financial conditions enough. Uh, we're going to do some... Uh, Operation twist. We're going to sell you some long end bonds and we're going to buy yeah. back some short end bonds. And then we're going to kill the short, the long NASDAQ from off because that, that's really going to get bad at that point. But that's why I put in Andreas two units of short Russell, yeah. one yeah. unit of the other one, because the idea is still to be short equities at the end of the day. If they do that, I can tell you the Russell doesn't have a good time either. No, I no, can no. tell you. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you basically, it? as long as the market doesn't bounce, then you're okay here. Well, let's see. Guys, uh, you have two trades now to do the opposite because that's that's the nature of this podcast. Andreas and I say a trade, you do the opposite, you make money, right? Uh, just kidding. Thanks for following us every week. The numbers of listeners is going up. You're great. 
tell a friend if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to the podcast app, give us a review, give us feedback, tell us who to invite on the podcast, make sure you interact with us because we are always looking for macro strategies, traders, good guests that can discuss with us the next macro trade idea on the macro trading floor. And we will be back next week week with a hedge fund legend. I'll leave it with that this week. See you next Sunday. Ciao, guys. Bye.